Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 23, Anna Roberts, Reclaiming the Importance of the Defendant's Testimony. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Anna Roberts. Anna is Associate Professor of Law and a faculty fellow of the Korematsu Center for Law and Equality at Seattle University School of Law. Anna teaches evidence, criminal law, and criminal procedure, and her scholarship focuses on race and the criminal trial, including issues such as peremptory challenges, implicit bias, and the use of prior convictions. Our podcast today focuses on an article entitled Reclaiming the Importance of the Defendant's Testimony, Prior Conviction Impeachment and the Fight Against Implicit Stereotyping, which was published in the University of Chicago Law Review. In the article, Anna takes on the use of prior convictions to impeach a testifying criminal defendant, specifically on the ground that the prior conviction shows a character for untruthfulness. The rule, of course, has long been criticized for silencing defendants in the criminal process. Anna, however, gives the debate two new twists. First, she suggests that courts have been misapplying the multi-factor Gordon test often used to assess and admit prior conviction evidence. Second, Anna brings the problem of implicit juror bias into the debate, arguing that silencing defendants is particularly pernicious given that defendant testimony may be one of the few effective ways of humanizing and individualizing the defendant and thus combating implicit bias. Anna, it's a pleasure to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you, Ed. Your article is about prior conviction impeachment of defendants, which is best known to insiders as Rule 609, specifically 609A1B. Just so that our audience is all on the same page, can you give us a brief overview of the rule and how it fits into the overall character evidence framework? Yes. Prosecutors are allowed to ask judges for permission to attack the credibility of testifying defendants using certain prior convictions. And broadly speaking, this particular rule allows prosecutors to ask for permission as regards two different categories of criminal conviction. One involves so-called crimina falsi. These are crimes of dishonesty or false statement. I leave those largely to one side in this particular paper. The second category, the one I focus on here, involves certain felonies. If prosecutors can persuade judges that the probative value of these felonies outweighs the prejudice, then typically they'll be allowed to use them. As regards what their probative value is, prosecutors are only supposed to use these to attack the credibility of defendants as witnesses. They're not supposed to be used for what we typically think of as propensity evidence. So prosecutors have to argue that this particular conviction is really useful to help show the jurors that they can't trust the defendant on the stand. 
as you suggest in the article, 609A1B has been elaborated on in the case law, specifically through what is basically a five-factor test in Gordon. How does that five-factor test help courts deal with the defendant's past convictions? Well, I'm afraid it's a bit of a mess. As you point out, there are these five factors, and I think judges find it useful to be able to run through them and then come up with an answer about whether a particular convictions are allowed in or not. It's tough for judges in the abstract without these kind of factors to say, well, is this conviction more probative than prejudicial on the issue of a defendant's credibility? So very briefly, the five factors are the impeachment value of the prior crime, the point in time of this prior conviction and what the witness did subsequently, the similarity between this past conviction and the crime that's being charged right now. Number four, and this is the one I'm really interested in here, is the importance of the defendant's testimony. And number five is the centrality of the credibility issue. I say it's a mess, and I'll zoom in on, in particular on why this fourth factor, the importance of the defendant's testimony, is a mess. In the very early case law underlying the federal rules, the courts said that this should be the most important factor. And they also said that the importance of the defendant's testimony is solely a factor that should help the defendant. If the defendant's testimony is important for the fact finder to hear, the court said that should weigh really heavily on judges deciding whether to allow prior convictions. And if allowing them in would chill the defendant ever from getting on the stand, they should hold back from allowing that impeachment. That was what the original case law said. What happens now is that often judges take the opposite read and they say, if the defendant's testimony is important, that means there's all the more reason why we should allow prosecutors to do this kind of impeachment. So the factor has been corrupted to the detriment of a great many defendants. Why do you think the courts did that? Was that sloppiness and in interpretation or was there something more nefarious going on? There's definitely those two possible interpretations. Let's start with the more benign one. As I say, that early case law was explicit that this was a pro-defendant factor. But then when the case law post the enactment of the federal rules of evidence laid out those five factors, they took them out of context. So all we have on this particular factor is the phrase, the importance of the defendant's testimony. So you could say this is entirely benign. Subsequent courts reading that factor have no reason to think that this is a pro-defendant factor or a neutral factor or a pro-prosecution factor. That's the benign reading. The more cynical or perhaps we should say realistic reading is that there's a desire to use 609 to help prosecutors get more convictions and get more quotes criminals off the street. So I'll leave it up to you and your audience whether they think it's the benign or the malignant thing that's going on here. Perhaps it's a bit of both. This leads me to a slightly different angle on the importance factor. You argue in the paper that the importance factor is actually something of a trump, so that it actually might supersede the normal probative value versus unfair prejudice analysis. To me, I've always interpreted the Gordon importance factor as basically part of the unfair prejudice requirement rather than a trump factor. Am I wrong about that? That's sometimes how it's read now, but I point in the paper to specific bits of case law saying that this can act as a trump card. So we do the probative and prejudicial valuing, and then 
we can look finally at this importance of the defendant's testimony factor. And if it's important, and if there's a fear that allowing this impeachment would chill it, that can act as a trump card. In this particular paper, I wanted to show why it's important that that trump card idea has been lost. And as you've seen, I turn to the issue of implicit juror stereotyping, the likelihood perhaps particularly with defendants of color, perhaps particularly with African-American defendants, that jurors will view that defendant not as an individual human, but solely or predominantly as a member of a stereotyped group. That seems to me enormously threatening to the presumption of innocence, particularly when we know about implicit prejudices, implicit stereotypes that link, for example, African-Americans with crime, violence, aggression, hostility, and immorality. So what I argue in the paper is that if we look at some of the science relating to implicit social cognition, we see that one of the things that can help push back against implicit stereotyping is a concept called individuation. Finding a way to bring, for example, a defendant to individual life in the eyes of the jurors. And one of the ways we might do that is through the defendant telling his or her story, getting up on the stand and giving direct testimony. So what I argue in the paper is that one reason why the loss of this factor as a trump card and the corruption and distortion of this factor matters is that we're so often losing an opportunity for defendants to individuate themselves, to push back against juror stereotypes from the witness stand. Let me try to push you in both directions here. The first question on this two-part question is whether or not the Trump card idea might be illegitimate. And the argument for why it might be illegitimate is that the rule states, and I'm going to quote here, must be admitted in a criminal case in which the witness is a defendant if the probative value of the evidence outweighs the prejudicial effect to that defendant. And so if you read the rules text, there's no room for any additional factor to overlay on top of that. Now, on the flip side, I think the argument is that if implicit bias is so important to address, then why should we even bother with the 609 framework? Should we not make this trump card one which argues in favor for the abolition of Rule 609 entirely for defendants? These are both great questions. It's absolutely right. There's a mismatch, whichever way you read it, there's a mismatch between these factors and the plain language of the rule. But as you know, it's often the case that we overlay the plain language of the rule with important elements of the case law. So I think plain language or not, there's room to find this a Trump factor. I'm, I'm sorry to use the phrase for those for whom the phrase is now toxic, but even if we don't read it as a Trump factor, we still need to read it as a factor. And one of the things I point out in the article is that it's often been lost as a factor altogether. Courts sometimes don't apply the importance of the defendant's testimony factor. Sometimes, as I've said, they distort it, they invert it. Sometimes they look at that factor and the factor that follows it, which is the centrality of the credibility issue, and they say, well, these two are awash, or we'll treat these two together. Well, that's ridiculous too. On the question of if implicit bias is such a huge problem, why bother with these factors at all? Why not just push for abolition? I'm with you on that. And there's been an evolution, or shall we say, an enrichment of my thinking here. 
in the paper that you've been reading, I take a sort of pessimistic or pragmatic approach and say, realistically, anytime soon, the federal rule and the various states, which is 47 of them that have something analogous, realistically, they're not going anywhere. And realistically, this five-factor test that now all but two of our federal circuits and many of our states use, realistically, that's not going anywhere either. Both these frameworks have been roundly and soundly criticized, but they seem to have sticking power. And so I say, well, let's work with them and let's see if there's an avenue in here for creative and important arguments about implicit stereotyping. In my third and I assume final paper on prior conviction impeachment, which is coming out early 2017, I suppose. In that paper, I say, let's think bolder and bigger. Let's think about abolition. Perhaps that is the only way forward. And in that paper, I focus on the three states that have abolished, in large part, this practice of impeaching criminal defendants. They are Kansas, Hawaii, and Montana. And I say, let's dive into what motivated them. Let's bring forward the fact that this has worked, and let's push for broader abolition. So I'm with you on, I think, the inevitable stopping point of this argument and the inevitable stopping point of the magnitude of implicit bias in this context. Let me push back a little bit on the argument about implicit bias, or at least the importance of implicit bias. In some ways, at least it seems to me, that sometimes the real problem with having silent defendants is not implicit bias, but rather that the jury simply believes that, or automatically believes that, a silent defendant is guilty, otherwise the defendant would testify. And this is the presumption of innocence or the right to remain silent notwithstanding. Doesn't that problem largely swamp any effect that implicit bias is going to have so that the real reason to remove 609 is to prevent silent defendants? I think there are numerous reasons to get rid of this practice. I don't know that the one you mentioned swamps this one. I think they move together, and I'm certainly not trying to downplay the problem that you mentioned. I think there's been a fair amount of writing on the point you make. There'd been nothing, however, written about the connection between prior conviction impeachment rules and their distortion and the predominance of and the threat posed by implicit fact finder bias. It seems to me extremely important to bring those two together as an additional reason to push for the abolition of this practice. Let me give you one more counter argument. My assumption here is that in order to get individualization, the defendant is not just getting on the stand and testifying about the facts of what happened on the night in question, but rather the defendant is going to talk about the defendant's background, his family, his social life, all of those sorts of things. To me, that kind of individualization evidence is basically a species of character evidence. You're basically convincing the jury that the defendant is a good or sympathetic person in some way. Should we be worried that abolition or even the imposition of this importance factor as a trump card, should we be concerned that that's going to be a bit too powerful of a debiasing mechanism? Are we effectively letting the defendant offer good character evidence without the cost of bad character evidence balancing things out. I don't know that I view this proposal as requiring that a defendant 
presents good character evidence. I don't think that would be permitted. I mean, I hope that motion practice before trial or before testimony, raising this issue of individuation, would persuade trial judges to give as much scope as they think they can within their discretion to allow the defendant to give a narrative. But I don't view it as necessarily good character evidence. I just view it as opening a window and showing the jurors that what we have here is a human being. There are so many pressures pre-trial and at trial on jurors to forget that or fail to acknowledge it, that I'm pushing for ways for them to be reminded of it or shown it. Some of the research that I draw on in this paper suggests that you don't necessarily need much to be said or an elaborate narrative to be given in order to have a chance of pushing back at the power of these stereotypes. So one of the studies I cite involved, I think, an African-American college student in a room with some folks observing her. And levels of stereotype activation, in other words, negative stereotypes being brought alive, were measured among those who were observing this young woman. And within 12 seconds of their exposure to her, their anti-African-American stereotypes, or some of them, have been activated. She then spoke about her experiences, and I don't think it was necessarily in a way that we would characterize as good character evidence. She just spoke. She just said that she felt stuff and she did stuff. And 12 minutes after she began, the stereotypes were no longer active, no longer activated. It's these sorts of studies which I find moving and fascinating that compel me to propose that judges take very seriously the possibility that the defendant be allowed to just get up on the stand and just say something within, of course, the limits of relevance to remind the jurors this is a person, a human person. So interesting that the empathy, at least in these studies, comes from mere interaction as opposed to even the words that are said. Yep. A final broader question for you. You've obviously spent considerable time over the last few years challenging the wisdom of Rule 609, and you were discussing earlier how your last piece talks about abolition. Why do you think that the system holds so tight to this rather anomalous rule? You were saying earlier as well that you didn't think that 609 was necessarily going away anytime soon. Earlier in this season, Julia Simon Kerr argues that character rules are basically a vestige of class distinctions, of whether certain people are worthy of being taken at their word. What are your thoughts on where the desire to keep Rule 609 comes from? It is a puzzle, isn't it? One of the leading scholars in this area, Montre Carradine, has said it's baffling why this remains a part of our evidence law, given the number of and the strength of critiques. I mean, this area of the law has been called a charade, or perhaps it's a charade over here. It's been called a hoax. It's been called ridiculous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why does it remain? Well, in, I think, the most recent paper, the newest paper, I throw out three possible explanations. Number one, that even though ostensibly we reject it in this area of the law, we're actually really wedded to the notion of propensity. 
And even though the science suggests that the way these convictions actually get used by jurors is not as credibility evidence, but as propensity evidence, you did something like this before, or you committed a crime before, therefore we think you're more likely to have done this one. I think we're wedded to that as a society and as criminal justice architects. So it fits rather nicely, despite being absurd. Number two, I think the implications of challenging the use of criminal convictions here are potentially large and for some disturbing. One of the things I try and do in my research in this area is point out the mismatch between what a criminal conviction may actually mean. It may mean, for example, you're poor or you're a person of color or you live in the wrong neighborhood. The mismatch between that and what it gets taken to mean as some sort of eternal brand on or descriptor of your character, that's absurd in my view. But the implications of trying to ask the question, hey, does a criminal conviction actually mean anything that we should put any weight on? Those are potentially really troubling for our system. And third, I think the effect of this rule, the silencing of defendants, may be something that our criminal justice system has come to rely on. Maybe, again, it's just too threatening to think about defendants speaking much at trial, revealing their humanity, revealing the suffering they've been through, showing that they're not that different from you and I, not different at all. So these are the kinds of arguments I put forward. As you've seen, they're troubling, but I believe them. So on that rather depressing note, thanks, Anna, for taking the time to be on Excited Utterance and sharing your thoughts on Rule 609. You're most welcome, Ed. Thank you. Anna's project on the admissibility of a defendant's prior convictions raises several important and interesting issues. Should courts consider the importance of the defendant's testimony in ways that go beyond the usual probative value versus unfair prejudice balancing? Anna suggests that they should, but the hook for such a doctrine is hard to find in the text of Rule 609 itself. One possibility might be to place it with the right to present a defense under Chambers v. Mississippi, or more recently, Holmes v. South Carolina. When the defendant's testimony is important, there's a significant need not to chill such testimony. And in these cases, imposition of Rule 609, which already stands on shaky theoretical grounds, might be thought somewhat arbitrary, or at least should give way to the defense. The Chambers theory for the factor, though, would make it far more limited than I think Anna would like. We also have a more fundamental question of whether a defendant's past convictions should be admissible at all. Given that a defendant always has powerful incentives to lie, it's questionable what added value a past conviction might really have on whether a jury chooses to believe the defendant's testimony. I thus would largely side with Anna's explanation that a defendant's past convictions are largely used, in actuality if not in theory, for traditional propensity purposes. The defendant was previously a criminal, and thus more likely to be a criminal now. But if this explanation is true, then Rule 609 is entirely incoherent. Why tie the release of the defendant's criminal record to whether the defendant testifies? The two should be completely independent, should defendants testify? Well, it seems to me that the answer here is clearly yes, not only because of Anna's concerns about implicit bias, but also because of the adverse inferences that a jury might draw from silence, as well as 
the simple general desire to have a complete narrative on both sides. Should a defendant's criminal record be admissible? Here, the answer is surely more controversial, but I don't see any reason why the admissibility of past convictions should be tied to whether the defendant chooses to testify. Finally, I'm struck by the psychological studies that Anna cites showing that bias stereotypes diminish markedly through simple interaction or observation of a person. Anna, of course, uses these insightfully to assess the dangers of Rule 609. But I think more broadly, those studies teach an important lesson to all of us in these increasingly polarized times. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.